you have your Bibles, I'd ask that you turn to Philippians uh, chapter 2, Philippians 2, starting at verse 19. Philippians 2, starting at verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Our Father in heaven, as your people, we have been born again through your living word. And so as we come to your word, the scriptures again, this morning, we pray that you would use them to build us up, to strengthen us in the faith, to transform us after the likeness of Christ, and to give us, like Christ, a deep and abiding love for one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The pastor stood behind the pulpit for the funeral as the coffin lay in front of him. The pastor opened his mouth and in his commanding tone said, if you cannot say anything nice about someone, don't say anything at all. And then he sat down, end of message. What would you do? Or what would you think in such a scenario? I'm not sure what the people in Daniel Featley's congregation thought or did, but this is basically what he did on one occasion while preaching many years ago in England. Featley, like many of his Puritan colleagues, was concerned to not present a more sanctified picture of the dead person than the truth deserved. And so when he got to the end of his funeral sermon, he said, and this is a quote, For my part, I never did, nor never will, gild or cover with gold a rotten post, or a mud wall, or give a false witness in praising, to give the praise of religion to those that deserve it not. And with that, Featley concluded his sermon. Now during Featley's day, uh, uh, over a span of about a hundred years, as the Protestant Reformation took hold in England, funeral practices were changing. One of the principal changes related to this practice of the eulogy. Uh, We often have eulogies in our uh, funerals today are eulogies of sorts where uh, uh, Uncle Joe or Aunt Jill will stand up and speak a few words about the person who had died. But in those days, in Featley's day, there were some reservations about this practice. 
Some ministers were worried about flattery and falsehood. Others were concerned because family members would sometimes pay off corrupt clergy to polish up the reputation of the dead person. This was a last chance at some PR. Some were also worried that those in attendance would misinterpret uh, the sermon as a a Catholic-like mass on behalf of the dead. Eventually, though, Reformed pastors realized that the eulogy represented an opportunity to highlight and illustrate with flesh and blood examples what a disciple of Jesus was supposed to look like. In his sermon, the pastor could point to a person that presumably the whole congregation knew, and he could highlight ways that the dead person showed by God's grace how to follow Jesus according to the Bible. And for this reason, though Featley's gilded post sermon was an exception, the practice of the the eulogy came into greater practice among Reformed ministers and Reformed funerals because they saw this as an opportunity to encourage people in how they should keep the Sabbath, how they should carefully use their time, how they should make diligent use of prayer and and devotions, how they should practice self-denial and hate sin and love the church and be concerned for the soul's of others. The embrace of this practice of personal praise was one that was very wise, I think, and also very biblical. The principle at work here or in these sermons was the same one that we see operative in our text this morning. We promote what we praise, so we should praise purposefully and we should praise consistently. You may have read the text this morning and wondered how on earth does this fit? Why is Paul suddenly talking about uh, travel plans for his two associates, Timothy and Epaphroditus? Maybe it seems to you like an awkward shift between the the rich uh, theological verses that we read about in the first half of the chapter, spending several sermons on that, and now suddenly we're getting into logistics. Well, if that's your question, let me encourage you that that's exactly the question that a savvy Bible reader will ask here. How do these verses fit into what Paul has been saying to the Philippians so far. Now, you may recall that Paul is writing this letter from prison, uh, either in Rome or in Ephesus most likely, and he's writing to this church that he had helped uh, start 10 years prior. And we're in this section where Paul's been urging the Philippians to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, which means selfless, sacrificial living and pursuing unity in that way. That's the big idea in in, uh, chapter 2 so far. Because of the comforts we've received in Christ, because we've been given the mind of Christ, because we've been given the example of Christ, because God has promised to work in us, to empower us, to grow like Christ, we should be striving to become more like Jesus by humbling ourselves and looking to the interests of others. And so reminding ourselves that this has been Paul's emphasis uh, to this point, it's going to help us to see what, uh, why Paul is abruptly or, 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 or seems to be abruptly changing topics here. Because really what he's doing is he's, he's building on this theme of selfless and sacrificial service for the sake of your fellow believer. So by looking carefully here at Paul's commendation of Timothy and Epaphroditus, we're going to see that Paul is purposefully, that Paul's pastorally holding these men up as examples to follow as we work out the holiness which God works in us. So this is our roadmap for this morning. We'll look at Paul's two examples, Timothy and Epaphroditus, as he encourages us to follow these men 
as they follow Christ in selfless service and humility. So first, let's look at Timothy. Paul hopes in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to the Philippians soon so that Timothy would be able to, be, or to bring a, a boots-on-the-ground report uh, to Paul on how the Philippians' faith was holding up in the midst of the persecution uh, that they were facing. But who exactly is Timothy? Since we've got two books of the Bible, which are actually letters from Paul to Timothy, we actually know a reasonable uh, a bit about him. We know that Timothy's mother was a Jewish Christian named Eunice, and that his father was a Greek. We know that uh, Timothy may have been converted during Paul's first missionary journey through modern-day Turkey. When Paul comes to Lystra in in Acts 16, uh, he says that he wants Timothy, who is known as a well-respected follower of Jesus, that Paul wanted Timothy to join him in his missionary work. It's also clear that Timothy was one of Paul's most trusted co-workers, We know from Paul's other uh, letters that he sent Timothy to Thessalonica to report on the ministry there. And he also sent uh, Timothy to the spiritually gifted but immature congregation at Corinth. Timothy also joins Paul when uh, when Paul takes the collection uh, to Jerusalem. Timothy's listed as a co-signer on this letter to the Philippians. He's also a a co-signer on Paul's letter to Philemon and uh, his letter to the the Colossian church. And we know that Timothy is eventually installed as the pastor at the church at Ephesus. So if that's Timothy's credentials, what's Timothy like? Again, I think the New Testament uh, helpfully fills in our, our picture of this young man. Paul, in his, in his second letter to Tim, Timothy, speaks of Timothy being a man who was a, a man of deep affection and feeling. He was a man with a sincere faith. Paul also knows that this dear brother is, is a man who struggles with anxiety and fear. Writing to Timothy that, uh, that God would, uh, gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control, and urging Timothy not to be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus or of Paul, but to share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Timothy was a man who had worries, had fears. Maybe you can relate to him. Donald Guthrie, a New Testament scholar, writes of Timothy, yet no other of Paul's companions is so warmly commended for his loyalty. It's fitting that the apostle's concluding letter, 2 Timothy, should be addressed so affectionately to this almost reluctant successor, whose weaknesses are as apparent as his virtues. And Paul wants to send Timothy, this faithful yet fearful Christian, to the Philippians because Timothy's faith has has established a reputation of being concerned for the well-being of others. Notice how Paul stresses this point in verses 20 to 22. Whereas others, Paul says, seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ, Timothy will be uniquely and genuinely concerned for your welfare. This isn't Paul throwing his other partners under the bus. He's not intending uh, to suggest that faithful men like Luke or John Mark, who may have been with him, uh, were self-centered. I think Paul's comment here is better explained if we remember what Paul has already said in this letter. Remember in chapter 1, Paul spoke of those who preached Christ from envy and rivalry. They they preached Christ out of selfish ambition. While there was those who who preached Christ 
out of love, Paul said, there was also this clear faction of those who, who uh, preached Christ for the purpose of sticking it to Paul and promoting their own personal brand. Ministry was just a guise to serve their own purposes. And it's these self-centered preachers whom Paul has in mind and, and with whom he contrasts Timothy, this man whose ambition was Christ and making Christ known. Timothy will be genuinely and deeply concerned for the Philippians' well-being. Like Paul, Timothy was a man who ex- uh, 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 would experience a, a deep anxiety and, and weight over the churches, as Paul speaks of his anxiety for the churches in, in, uh, in his letter to the Corinthians. So in this way, Timothy resembles Paul, his father in the faith, as a man who cares deeply for these people. Now, Paul hoped that by sending Timothy to them, he would, uh, they would be able to see Timothy's servant attitude on display. Even Timothy's apparent willingness to go on this trip is an indication that he was a man ready to serve. Dennis Johnson, in his commentary, highlights the personal cost that Timothy would be taking uh, by making a trip to Philippi uh, in a world without planes, trains, and automobiles. Okay, Timothy was, uh, uh, if Paul was imprisoned in Rome, as Johnson suggests he was, then Timothy would have an extensive 37-day journey that he would be taking. He would travel 350 miles on foot to the Italian coast. He would then uh, sail 90 miles across the Adriatic Sea, so that's a journey about the equivalent of sailing across Lake Michigan. And then he'd travel another 360 miles to Philippi. And he would make this trip twice. So youth group, here's a point of reference for you. You guys are going uh, to Boardwalk Chapel in New Jersey. This would be like making a round trip, uh, trip to the New Jersey coast in dangerous conditions on foot and by boat just so you could encourage a, a, a church there. It might make you think twice. Service for the sake of others was, wasn't just lip service uh, for Timothy. According to Paul, this was Timothy's reputation. And though the journey would have been dangerous, it would have been uh, costly, though he would have been entering into a, a difficult situation where the Philippians were suffering, Timothy would put aside his own interests for the sake of Paul, his father in the faith, and for the sake of the Philippians. You see, Timothy understands that humility, true humility to serve is dangerous and it takes courage. And so it's clear that God was doing a work in this young man who was acquainted with fear and anxiety. God was working in Timothy the mind of Christ, and he was empowering Timothy to grow in Christ-likeness. And so Paul holds up Timothy as an example to the Philippians and to us as an example of what it looks like when, when humble self-forgetfulness that, that Paul has been preaching to this point, when that humble self-forgetfulness begins to take root in God's people. Timothy's no superstar. Here is someone, to quote Guthrie again, whose weaknesses were as apparent as his, as his virtues. He was a faithful man, but often a fearful and anxious man. He was, in a real sense, just like the Philippian Christians. He was just like you and me. And so we mustn't miss Paul's purpose in speaking of Timothy as he does here. It's no coincidence that Paul highlights for us the very qualities that he has spent so much time talking about uh, uh, in, in the verses preceding this. 
Right? In his selfless service, Timothy models for us what it looks like when God works in us a mind and a will to look like Jesus. That's Timothy. The second person that Paul mentions is Epaphroditus. While Paul hopes to send Timothy to the Philippians soon, he intends to send Epaphroditus right away. Unlike Timothy, we don't have letters addressed to Epaphroditus. His name means charming and handsome. Uh, But before you add his name uh, to your list of potential uh, boys' names, if you're in the market for that, uh, his his name also had clear links uh, to the Greek god Aphrodite, uh, who was the goddess of love. So while we might say that Timothy was the, the kid who grew up in Sunday school, learning the Bible from his mother and grandmother, Epaphroditus' name suggests that he grew up in a different context. He had a different experience. He was from a pagan uh, background. But God had saved Epaphroditus, and he had made Epaphroditus a willing servant of Jesus. We also know that Epaphroditus was from Philippi in Philippians 4.18. The only other place that Epaphroditus is mentioned, we're told that he had delivered from Philippi a, um, a financial gift to Paul to support him. So he was their messenger and minister to Paul's need. Like Timothy, uh, it's also clear that Epaphroditus uh, was someone whom Paul had a great deal of confidence in and affection for. Look at verse 25 how Paul stacks up three descriptions of Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is a brother. This man, converted from paganism, was now a brother to Paul in the faith. He's also a fellow worker. He's a fellow soldier. Epaphroditus was someone who was in the trenches with Paul, who was striving side by side with Paul for the sake of the gospel. And yet it was during this work that Epaphroditus fell gravely ill. And the Philippians, though they're hundreds of miles away, they had heard about Epaphroditus' illness and they were worried. They were deeply concerned. And so Paul intends to send Epaphroditus, but he doesn't downplay the seriousness of the situation. Paul says, frankly, we almost lost him. In verse 30, he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. More than just indicating Paul, uh, travel plans here, Paul is publicly and purposefully honoring a man whose heart was characterized by a deep concern for Jesus and for Jesus' people. Epaphroditus was someone who had taken on the role of a servant. He was a minister to Paul's needs. He had humbled himself in service to the verge of death. And it's in this way that Paul wants us to see that Epaphroditus was walking in the pattern established for us by Jesus, which we read about in verses 7 and 8. But Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In Epaphroditus' case, though he was uh, brought to the point of death, God graciously spared him. He restored him. But the connection, I think, is clear and intentional. Paul is saying here, here is a brother who shows us, not fully, but helpfully, what it means to follow in the footsteps of the suffering servant, Jesus. It's this servant's attitude that's also evident by Epaphroditus' concern to return back to the Philippians and to alleviate their anxiety about him. Right? So oftentimes when, when we're in suffering, what happens? Our focus turns inward upon ourselves. 
not Epaphroditus. He loves his church family at Philippi. He longs to be with them again. He's eager to put them at ease concerning his condition. And therefore, Paul says, receive Epaphroditus back with joy and honor such men. Though severe weakness and and illness may have limited his service, men like Epaphroditus, who would engage in a, a costly service for the sake of the saints, they are precious and to be esteemed as such. Now, it's important that we see that our verses this morning are very much connected with what Paul has been saying. As I've said, they're not just travel plans. Paul very purposely points us to Timothy and Epaphroditus as models of a Christ-like attitude that he's been calling us and the Philippians to. And so as we consider, how are these verses supposed to change us today? First of all, we need to repeat what we've said for several sermons now. Once we've come to know the the grace and comforts that are found in Jesus, trusting in him, uh, becoming a follower of him, Once that happens, we should strive in God's strength to grow in a sacrificial, selfless service to others. That's that's a, a critical part of what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. But as we study the Bible, we should also be careful to catch not only what the apostolic teaching is, but what the apostolic method is. Not only what Paul is saying in terms of content, but what Paul is doing in terms of his strategy. I think that's especially true in terms of these verses. We need to catch how the Apostle Paul encourages us to grow in Christlikeness. By looking at this passage, I want us to see two things by way of application. First, how we can help others to grow to be like Jesus. And second, how we can become more like Jesus ourselves. So first, we can help others become more like Jesus by adopting Paul's purposeful and public praise of others. By adopting Paul's purposeful and public praise of others. In these verses, Paul publicly affirms and honors men, honors men who look like Christ. They look like Christ in very specific ways, and he highlights that so that he can encourage others to grow like Jesus too. Catch these features. Paul praises Christ-like virtues in others. Virtues that Paul has said in verse, verses 12 to 13 come from God. He praises them purposefully and publicly. Paul understands that God has wired us to desire affirmation. Parents, you understand this, of course. Uh, when I praise one of my children for uh, finishing all the food on their plate, a wonderful irregularity, The other will quickly scarf down their food, and 20 seconds later, what do I hear? Dad, look at my plate. Right? Like like flowers that grow toward the sunlight, uh, we're naturally inclined to move toward the warmth of praise and commendation. Now, of course, this God given design can be used for wicked or misguided purposes. For example, I've known marriages where spouses have preyed upon their partner's longing for affirmation for selfish, sinful purposes. And yet, affirmation can be used, uh, while affirmation can be used for godless purposes, it can also be used for godly purposes. It's supposed to be used for godly purposes. Who and what we affirm communicates to people the direction that they should strive to grow. 
When we sincerely and publicly affirm others, we're setting a marker in the ground as if to say, this is where I'm hoping to go. This is how I'm hoping to grow, and I hope you'll come with me. So fathers, who or what do your children hear you affirm? What are the the things that you speak most positively about in your home around your children? Is it the uh, hard worker, uh, the man of independence, the straight shooter? Is it the person who's hugely successful or wildly popular? We need to ask the question, is the net result of our praise, and we all to some extent praise things, is the net result of our praise that our sons will have a hunger to become, uh, become uh, more like Christ, disciples of Christ, or to become disciples of the culture we're a part of? What do your daughters hear you affirming about your wife? Publicly celebrating Christ-like conduct in your wife, even if it's just an imperfect glimmer, sends a message. As husbands and as fathers, we need to develop a reputation in our families of affirming reflections of Jesus' character and conduct in the people around us. Actively search out and praise kindness and gentleness and meekness and compassion and selflessness. Praise these things as being admirable pictures of what Jesus is like. Now, wives, you might be sitting there thinking, boy, I hope he's listening. Okay, don't go home and tell him that. Start by putting this into practice yourself. Openly praise and honor godliness around you and your family. Again, develop a reputation, a habit of praise and affirmation for Christ-likeness around you. This, of course, isn't limited to the home, but it's for all our relationships. I can recall a very clear, powerful example of this in my own life, a very simple example. It was about 15 years ago. Uh, my mom noted to me how one particular man in our church, his name was Sid, how he always spoke very highly of and affectionately of his wife. I don't think my mom thought anything of this, but this powerful act of affirmation, right, just of this, the godly character of this man, it stood out to me and it made me think, man, I want to be like Sid. Uh, I, I, I wish that I would develop a reputation for speaking of my wife uh, like that one day. And... Thankfully, I had the opportunity to work with Sid for for several years, and I got to watch him and and learn from him how he did this in his marriage. As followers of Christ, if we want to help others grow in Jesus, one of the tools that we see the Apostle Paul using is the purposeful praise of the good work that God is doing in others. Affirmation communicates what is valuable and what is worthy of imitation. And this quite naturally brings us to our second application. If we ourselves want to grow in Jesus, we should seek out Christ-like examples to follow. Now, here in West Michigan, I think we've got a slight aversion to talking like this. Okay, for those of us who have been uh, brought up in the Reformed Church, we've got enough theology to know that we're sinners. Uh, Even as redeemed sinners, we still fall short of God's perfect standard as we confess this morning. That is true. But we think it would be proud. It would be foolish to suggest that we follow another sinner. Now, of course, there is a degree of truth in that. We uh, continue, even as redeemed sinners, we're, we're sinners. But the conclusion or the application that we draw from that is not a biblical one. It's certainly not a Pauline one. Uh, Paul very much sees imitation of other Christians to be part of the way that God uh, works to grow us like his son. You see this all over the New Testament. 
In Philippians 3.17, Paul writes, Brothers, join in imitating me. But it's not just Paul that they're to imitate, because he continues, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So those who follow Paul, they're to imitate. Similarly, we're told in Hebrews, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Writing to the Thessalonians, Paul commends them since they became imitators of Paul and his colleagues and imitators of the Lord because they've received the word in much affliction. Though Paul was a holy man, he was absolutely adamant that he was not a sinless man. And yet he could say, as he does to the Corinthians, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. It's a New Testament expectation that Christians will follow others as they follow Christ. Well, Jesus, of course, is our our perfect example, as we saw earlier in Philippians 2. He's not our only example, okay? Knowing our weakness and our need, God expects that we should find spiritual benefit in seeing real flesh and blood examples around us of those who, by the work of the Holy Spirit, are, are, are giving us glimpses of what Jesus is like. Right now, we see Jesus by faith. We don't see him uh, by sight. We don't physically see him, but God helps us in our weakness by giving us Timothys, by giving us Epaphroditus, by giving us mothers and fathers, by giving us people in the church like Sids and Stevens and Sharons and Bens. Do you want to grow as a follower of Jesus? Study other Christians up close who are more mature than you, or perhaps in particular areas are, are, are just stronger than you are. One step you could take is to read a good uh, Christian biography. I'd commend to you Jonathan Aitken's uh, biography on the great hymn writer, John Newton, author of Amazing Grace. Uh, Don Carson's biography on his father, Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. Also, an excellent book on an ordinary Christian just trying to serve Jesus in French Canada. Highly recommend it. Our sister, uh, Rebecca Van Dudewoord, has written a book, a compilation of short biographies, Reformation Women, another good place that you could go that would encourage you. Or if you're not a reader, uh, listen to John Piper's uh, biographical talks online. You can download them for free. I'd highly recommend them to you as as examples of, of Christian courage and patience and steadfastness. Well worth your time. Even more, though, I would encourage you to find and follow godly examples that God has placed around you right here at Harvest Church. People who you can learn from, people who you can ask questions of, people who you've invited to ask questions of you. I had a brother within the past couple months uh, um, ask me to recommend some names of people in the church so that he could invite them out for lunch so he could learn from them about a, a particular area that he was desiring to grow. And that just struck me as an incredibly wise and humble step Uh, that the Lord was helping this brother take, that he was just uh, desirous to grow like Jesus in this area, and he wanted help. I thought that was wonderful. Maybe you're not sure, though, where to start. I want to commend to you another short little book here. Uh, It's by Garrett Kelsey. It's, uh, It's actually short. It's not just pastor short. It's entitled, How Can I Find Someone to Disciple Me? Costs less than $5. I read it in less than an hour. It contains a number of helpful suggestions for who you should look for and how to initiate a conversation. It can be as simple as just asking someone out for coffee or or going over to help someone with uh, dinner prep and just seeing if they'd be willing to talk to you about different areas of the Christian life. So oftentimes we learn by watching. 
kids watch and listen to their parents. It's how our kids, for good or for ill, learn to talk and to interact and to do things. Students watch their teachers. Employees watch their employers. And in this sense, being a Christian is not any different. Paul's strategy encourages us to pray for and look for and to follow godly examples so that we can grow as followers of Jesus. So do you really want to grow to be more like Jesus? Do you want to grow? If an honest assessment of that answer or or, or that question is no, or I don't know, or I'm not sure, or I don't care, let me urge you just to confess that to the Lord today. To ask Him to give you a, a new or a renewed desire to want to be like Jesus the Savior, to, to experience a desire to know Jesus' transforming power at work in your life. But if right now you're saying, yeah, I do want to be uh, more like Jesus. I want to grow as a follower of him. Well, we would do well to learn from the, uh, from the Apostle Paul and to learn from his example by learning from the godly examples around us. It's how God intends for you to grow in spiritual maturity. Or to put it more vividly, it's how God intends to gradually but surely mold you into the image of his son, the ultimate servant who in love gave himself on the cross in costly service for you and for all who would believe. What a thing to to look like Jesus. The Bible says he's the most handsome of the sons of men. He's the perfect embodiment of of love and goodness and selflessness. He's morally pure and radiant in holiness. He's the selfless servant king. And he's beautiful. And we then look to others as they look to Jesus so that we might look like Jesus. What an expectation. May God help us in it. Let's pray. Oh God, we desire not to stay who we are right now, but with, I think, an appropriate discontent. We long for a greater growth, a greater holiness, a greater resemblance to our Savior Jesus. That desire can only come from you by your Spirit working that in us, And as you've given us that desire, Lord, we pray that you would do the two things that we've talked about, that you would first of all help us to be people who see and praise the Christ-like good in others, that we might encourage those around us to grow in godliness, but also, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and a humility to follow after brothers and sisters as they follow the Lord Jesus. And we pray that you would do this so that more and more, day by day, step by step, we would be conformed after his likeness until that day when we see him face to face and we shall be like him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.